The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. It's a man named Robertson McQuilkin, and he served as the president of Columbia International University in Columbia, South Carolina. And in March of 1990, he resigned as president, and here's what he said. My dear wife, Muriel, has been in failing mental health for about eight years. So far, I've been able to carry both her ever-growing needs and my leadership responsibilities as president, but recently it's become apparent that Muriel is contented most of the time she is with me, and almost none of the time I'm away from her because she was experiencing Alzheimer's. It is not just discontent. She is filled with fear, even terror, that she has lost me and always goes in search of me when I leave home. She may be full of anger when I return, and she cannot find me. So it is clear that she needs me now full time. Perhaps it would help you to understand, he continued in his letter, if I shared with you what I shared at the time of my announcement. This decision for me was made in a way 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do us part. So as I told the students and faculty, integrity has something to do with it, but so does fairness. Muriel cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years. If I cared for her for the next 40 years, I still wouldn't be out of debt. Duty, however, can be grim and stoic, but there is more than duty. I love Muriel. She's a delight to me. Her childlike dependence and confidence in me, her warm love, her occasional flashes of that wit that I used to relish, her happy spirit and tough resilience in the face of her continual distress and frustration— I do not have to care for her. I get to. It is a high honor to care for so wonderful a person. This story uh, is fuller told. Our Sunday school teachers blessed us with this at a marriage retreat that we had in Emmanuel. And the story's title is A Promise Kept, where Robertson talks about watching his wife's mental health deteriorate and how to walk with her through that. And that prepares us well for the title, of this morning's sermon. Today's sermon is called The Covenant of Marriage. Last Sunday, we looked at the foundation of marriage as the pattern and power of Jesus from Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 30. But today, we look at Ephesians 5, verses 31 through 33, as we see the covenant of marriage. The covenant of marriage rests on both husband and wife being dramatically opposed to self-interest, but instead being unselfish. Today, we just three simple points, okay? So the first point is the pleasure of promise. The second is the power of promise. And the third is the purpose for the promise. And we'll just do one truth per verse in Ephesians 5, 31 through 33. So if you're using the Pew Bible, um, join us on page 1162. You'll want the Bible open in front of you, page 1162. We're in Ephesians 5, looking at the covenant of marriage today, in particular, the promise of it. So look with me in God's word, Ephesians 5, verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This verse shows us what I call the pleasure of promise. Now, maybe if you've been in church for a while, you've heard a pastor or a teacher say something like this. Hey, what's the therefore, therefore, right? You've heard of this? 
And this is helpful normally, but in this case, it could get you in trouble because this, therefore, is actually not related to Ephesians 5. It's a quotation of Genesis 2, verse 24. So the question would be, what was happening in Genesis 2 that has God the Spirit through Paul quoting it now? And the answer in Genesis 2 is that God, having called everything he made good and having called the making of man very good, then for the very first time said something was not good. And what he said was not good was for man to be alone. And then God did something extremely good. God brought woman to man. And then God is the person, given the editorial comment that we have here. Therefore, because I put two together... A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so the first part underneath number one that I want to show us is that this requires a promise. Verse 31, shall leave and hold fast. What it means is rather simple. The promise is to protect the most important human relationship over and above all other good, but not as prioritized human relationships. The husband and wife relationship is to be protected more than any other relationship. I've always found it remarkable that when God first says this, there are no other humans alive. And yet God wants Adam and Eve to know what must be true for all marriages at all times. They are to protect the relationship they have with each other over and against everything else. Now, most continents in most centuries made very much of a parent's relationship over their children Our continent and our century makes very much of a child's relationship with his parent. But God did not place a parent and a child in the garden. God placed a husband and a wife in the garden. The husband and the wife priority is exceedingly important. In fact, listen this morning, your marriage will slowly die if your spouse reasonably infers that any other relationship is a higher priority to you than that one. So let me give us some reminders of the warning that God has given us here. Think of it this way. If you care about your career so much that you avoid taking care of your health, you don't eat well, you don't exercise, you prioritize the career, eventually you'll lose both. And if you don't prioritize the marriage, the implications are huge. I think we all know as married people that when things are going well as a couple, No matter what else is happening in your life, you're okay. But no matter how great things are, if you don't want to go home, then no matter how well things are going outside of the home, it really undercuts everything else. So God here is telling us something very important to protect. So what needs to be left? And let me give some principles here just to help you think about it. What do we need to leave? Well, we need to leave spatial boundaries. There might be times that, though hospitality is a great thing, we do have to protect the marital relationship in such a way that it doesn't undercut it. Financially, we ought not be dependent on any relationship outside of husband and wife. Let's go further. We also have to be clear psychologically. If you can't make a decision as husband and wife without calling that one other friend, then you have too much dependence on that other friend. Or think of it this way, how... Your upbringing can then cast a shadow into your marital relationship. I've talked to many people who say something like this. I am not going to make my kids go to church because my dad made me go to church. 
And I mean, I, I'm a little biased on that particular question, obviously. But I always think, but you're an adult. Why would you still be thinking through the lens of what your parents did or didn't make you do? You haven't left them. Uh, let's go a, a little further. It also means that there are unspoken rhythms that you've picked up in your home that you should be careful about transferring to your marriage. For example, m- my dad has a skill uh, that I observed growing up, and it is when we're on the couch watching TV, like a hawk, he waits until someone stands up. And then he says, if you love me, will you bring me a bowl of chips or whatever he's in the mood for? It's really good at him. Really good at him. Uh, and I, I was formed by that. I saw that many, many times. My, my grandfather uh, fought in the U.S. Army. He was stationed in Germany and fought in World War II, but he never changed a single diaper, not one. He's only heard stories of what the contents of those are. Um, he, he told me a great story once of how uh, he was on the, it's, it's kind of like a subway. Downtown Detroit's called a people mover, and he was on it with a child who he knew needed to be changed for three hours and made sure he was not the one to change that diaper. Now, honestly, my grandma and grandpa had a really good marriage, and my, my mom and dad do as well. But those formative influences shape what I think marriage ought to be. But this text reminds us that I should be careful about bringing in things that are things that you may need to leave, right? So fulfillment boundaries we need to be careful about as well. We should be careful that we love our children, but not in a way that undercuts our love for our spouse. We should be careful that we care about our friends, but not in such a way that we fall asleep scrolling pictures about them and ignore the person laying right next to us. Leaving and holding fast is so important. Verse 31, the verb shall leave and the verb hold fast are both in the future tense. This is why this is so important. They're not in the past tense. They're not saying you once left and you once held fast. They're also not in the present tense. You need to keep leaving. You need to keep holding fast. They're in the future tense. They're talking about a promise because we all know that when you have a goal in the future, it shapes the direction you have until you get there. They're a promise that helps you then fulfill everything that leads up to it. In fact, the word translated hold fast in English, one Greek lexicon gives this definition of it. It means to be glued to. To make a promise that the two of us have a future commitment. Now, here's what that means, and this is so difficult for us in our modern moment. We tend to think of love as being hooked on a feeling. It's a present thing you have. You can fall in it. You can fall out of it. But that's not the way the Bible talks about love. It talks about it as a future promise that has a present ought. Look in verse 28. Look up just a couple verses. The ESV says, in the same way husbands should love. And every other English translation writes ought. Husbands ought to love. Why? Because they've made a promise to leave and hold fast. Now, here's the good news. If you're thinking, well, that sounds obligatory and therefore it sounds less pleasurable. But actually, the opposite is true. The future promise is what deepens greater joy. C.S. Lewis wrote this, people get the idea from books that if you've married the right person, you may expect to go on feeling in love forever. 
As a result, the day they find out they're not feeling it, they think this proves they have made a mistake and are entitled to a change, not realizing that when they have changed, the glamour will presently go out of the new love just as it went out of the old one. But in this department of life, as in every other, Lewis continues, the type of thrills that come at the beginning, the dying away of those first thrills, is compensated by a quieter and more lasting kind of interest. It's the kind of people who are ready to submit to the loss of the fleeting thrills that will meet the new thrills in a quite different direction. Everyone who's been married over years knows how true that can be. Because the reality of marriage is that there are undulating circumstances and feelings. But the power of promising for the future is what secures us to go with eyes wide open despite the changes that we may feel. Lewis Smead put it really well when he said this, When I married my wife, I had hardly a smidgen of sense for what I was getting into. How could I know how much would change over the next 25 years? How could I know how much I would change? My wife has lived with at least five different men since we were wed, and each of the five has been me. (laughs) That is exactly how it works. This is why G.K. Chesterton was really wise when he said this, Love is not blind. That is the last thing that it is. Love is bound. And the more it is bound, the less it is blind. You see? The promise is to say, my eyes are wide open. And that is why I know I will need grace to fulfill the promise. That's why verse 28 says, ought. Now again, you could object. Well, Josh... I've watched a lot of TV, and I've been taught that love is supposed to be spontaneous. In order for love to be authentic, doesn't it need to be unbound? Some of you know, last month we went up to Michigan. Uh, My wife graciously helped us lead a 50th wedding anniversary party for my parents, which was a lot of fun. It's better to go to Michigan in July, by the way. While we were there, we went to a number of stores to get balloons, to get items, and, and a few times I was out with my dad. And they said, what are you buying? And we explained, it's their 50th wedding anniversary. And they said to Dad, congratulations, 50 years. And almost every time, Dad looked at them and said, yeah, 50 years. If I'd killed somebody, I'd be out by now. <laughs> Singing, yeah, I'm not sure what you're conveying in that. Right? <laughs> of course, he was just trying to have fun. But he is indicating something most of us tend to think. That in order for freedom to be free... I can't be bound to someone or something. But think for a second and be honest. Waking up to the same person every morning, forgiving them every evening, asking for forgiveness just as often, letting them see all of your worst parts and yet committing to love them, which is more freeing, that or the fear of being vulnerable and transparent? Here's what I'd actually argue. Those who are afraid to be vulnerable and open are actually enslaved by their fear rather than by the freedom that comes through the transparency. See, Jesus said something remarkable in John 8, verse 34. Truly I say to you, whoever practices sin is a slave to sin. But if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The freedom comes... Through the promise. 
See, when verse 31 says you shall leave and you hold fast and they're in the future tense, they're telling us something really remarkable. The promise is what will secure the pleasure. See, love is an ought that then shapes your feels. And we all know this is true if you have children. Because when you have children, you immediately serve them as an obligatory action because that's the only way they can survive. And then over 18 years, you actually love that brat. (laughs) And when they go to move on, it really feels something to you. Why? Because you have dutifully loved them over the years. And then sadly, we think it won't possibly work that way with a romantic partner, but it does. Love is an ought that will shape our feels. It is a promise that enhances our pleasure. By the way, it works the other way too. If you will treat someone poorly, then over time you'll actually dislike them. In World War II, C.S. Lewis did a BBC radio program, and here's what he said in the middle of World War II. The Germans perhaps at first ill-treated the Jews because they hated them. Afterward, they hated them much more because they had ill-treated them. See that the feeling actually follows the regular action. So here's what I'm arguing from just verse 31, that love is a promise that will establish and enhance our pleasure. I showed you the promise. Now let me show you the pleasure. It's the end of verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And here's the pleasure part. They then become one flesh. What the word one flesh means is a really, really big deal. All right, if you have pepperoni pizza, the pepperoni is on top, but they're not one flesh. They're distinct compounds. If you mix chocolate chips with cookie dough, you may mix them, but they remain separate. You can tell what I've been eating lately by those two analogies. (laughs) But if you have two different compounds and they are melded together to create a new compound, now you understand what one flesh means. One flesh are not two individuals that come together to coexist peacefully. There are two individuals that cease to be the individuals and are now a new entity, a new person, one flesh. In Hebrew, the word flesh, nephesh, normally doesn't mean flesh the way we talk about flesh as separate from spirit since Plato, but it actually means flesh in the sense of a person. So many times in the Bible, God says things like, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh or I'll flood all flesh. He just means all persons. So the two persons now become a one new person. That means that you have incredible, incredible recreative power over your spouse. Incredible. Because you're one. Didn't you see from the verses he read? No one ever hated his own flesh. He nurtured it. He cared for it. Let me try to say it to you this way. Husbands, And wives, you have incredible power to make or break your spouse. You can get in an argument at work. You can get in an argument with your sibling. You can say hard things to your neighbor, but they'll probably be okay. But there's a sentence that if you said it to your spouse, it could be over. Because all those other relationships are like the use of a BB gun. They could hurt someone, and over time they could make an impact, but they're small in their impact. But the relationship with your spouse is like a rocket launcher. The wrong sentence 
And all you're left is with a pair of sneakers and smoke coming out of them. It's a, it's a dangerous power to wield. I'll tell you honestly, I love y'all. I care about all of you. And I, to some degree, care what you think. But not nearly as much as I care what Stephanie thinks. If after today's sermon, you said, Josh, that was terrible, I'd say, yeah, most of them are. But if Steph said, that was really bad, that, I would feel something there. Now, now, now let me say it positively. It also, though, means spouses. You have incredible God-given power to build the other one up. Have you ever tied, tried to turn a screw and you didn't have a screwdriver? You grabbed like a, a paper clip, a knife. You can kind of sort of make it work, but it's slow and the impact is very minimal. You replace that with a drill and it happens quickly. Positively, a husband and wife have incredible power to build each other up, but that power is built on promise. So look again in verse 31. The promise of shall leave and hold fast is what gives the pleasure the two become one flesh. And I now want to show you that the other places in the Bible where this verse is quoted are all built on promise or obligation. Here's the first one. So what does one flesh mean? If you're a note taker, I'm going to give you three specific times the Bible uses one flesh and ties it to promise. Okay. What does one flesh mean? First and most obviously it means you are joined not to be separated. Matthew 19, Jesus is talking, Matthew 19. He said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh, Jesus said. And then he concluded, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. You see, Jesus is saying the pleasure of it is tied to the promise of it. Now, the pleasure of it is also in the sexual realm, but that too is based on promise. So the other time that this verse is quoted, it's used referring to sex between a man and a woman. First Corinthians 6, verse 16, Paul condemns them. He says, do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. That's really interesting. Paul is saying that part of the one flesh relationship is not even necessarily childbearing, but just the joy and pleasure of sex between a husband and a wife. If it's used outside of that, though, it loses the promise. And that's why he continues in 1 Corinthians 7 by saying this, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body. The husband does. The husband does not have authority over his own body. The wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by an agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Notice that the one flesh pleasure of sexuality is built on a promise of mutual sacrifice and commitment. Now, I'm very glad that our children are in children's church right now. Otherwise, I'd have many difficult questions over lunch from my own kids. But let me read a quote that may be very helpful to your marriage that you might want to talk about on sex. All right, so it's by Tim Keller from The Meaning of Marriage. Here's what he writes. Modern people think of love in such subjective terms that if there's any duty involved, it's considered unhealthy. Over the years, I've counseled with people who were quite locked into this conviction. This is particularly true when it comes to sex. Many people think that if you have sex with your spouse just to please him or her, 
and you're not interested yourself, it would be inauthentic or oppressive. This is a thoroughly subjective understanding of love as passionate feeling. And often this quickly leads into a vicious cycle. If you won't make love unless you're in a romantic mood at the very same time as your spouse, sex will not happen that often. This can dampen and quench your partner's interest in sex, which means there will be even fewer opportunities. Hear his last sentence. Therefore, if you never have sex unless there is great mutual passion, there will be fewer and fewer times of mutual passion. You see the wisdom of what he's saying. This is why God is trying to tell us that the pleasure is enhanced by a promise. Therefore, the pleasure can grow in it. All right, the third and the foundational time that this phrase is used is, of course, Genesis 2. Let me quickly quickly review what happens there. God said it's not good for man to be alone. But in that time, Adam has been entrusted by God to name the animals. And Adam names all of the animals and realizes that none of them are his compatible fit. And then God puts Adam to sleep. And he pulls a rib out of him so that the very woman he creates will be literally from him. I love that section of the narrative that God pulls a rib out of Adam. I heard this great story this kid. He was in Sunday school. He heard that the woman was made out of Adam's rib. Later that week, he was at school, and he fell from the top of the playground. And he came over to his teacher holding his side, and the teacher said, what's wrong? And the kid said, I think I'm having a wife. (laughs) is so good. (laughs) But it's, it's a good reminder that from the beginning, from the beginning, these are conjoined people. They cannot exist apart from each other. Honestly, I think the best word for us to use today is best friend. When Adam saw Eve and he said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. I can name her woman because she is from me and of me and we are for one another. So I want to hear, I want you to hear what I'm saying from the Bible. Um, married people, your spouse ought to be your best friend. I heard a true story of a man years ago who in his wedding party, in his bridal party, his best man, the man, the groom's best man was a woman. If I was the officiant doing the premarital counseling, I would want to sit him down and make him honestly articulate, then why are you marrying her rather than her? Tell me the honest reason. Because you're about to destroy three lives. Yours and the woman you're marrying for shallow reasons, and the woman you won't marry for sad reasons. See, the spouse is the best friend. Number one was the power of the pleasure of promise, but now number two, the power for promise. How are we going to have power to promise like that, to serve each other like that? And the answer is that the power is something that preceded Adam and Eve. The power is the star, the vibrant source from which Adam and Eve are the shadow and the reflection. Look in verse 32. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul has used the word mystery 
up to almost 20 times in the New Testament. He's used it several times in this book. And every time he uses it, it means that human unaided reason would never have connected these dots. But now God, through revelation, has shown us what he had always planned. I mean, when you read Genesis 1 and 2, you think, this is Adam and Eve. And it is. But Ephesians 5 says, but there was also much more going on that God had planned from eternity past. God was going to send his son. And marriage just echoes that when Christ is the power in it. So maybe this morning you're here, you're visiting, and I'm really glad you're here this morning. But perhaps you don't really know a whole lot about Jesus. So I want you to know something. The power that we need will not flow until we know Jesus Christ. You have to know him. You have to know who he is. You have to know him relationally. You have to have him in your heart in order for this to flow out in your marriage. So let me show you just one thing that Jesus did on the most important weekend in history so that you can see what it teaches us about marriage. In Jesus' final day before he died, he was hung on the cross. And Matthew 27 records the way he was ridiculed. Three different groups of people came in front of the cross, and all three said essentially the same thing. And here's what they said to Jesus. Jesus, if, if you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. You said you were the Son of God. If you really are, then come down from the cross, and then we will believe in you. You see what they're appealing to? You have this power. Why don't you exercise your own rights and do what you want to do? But actually, the reason you should believe in Jesus is because he wouldn't come down from the cross. Because he didn't exercise his power for his own self-service, but he emptied himself for the joy of those he was saving. And that shows you the posture of husband and wife. Not coming to demand what I think I deserve, but coming to empty myself and serve someone who I exalt over myself. This is the power of marriage. And it is a power that only comes through Jesus. And it will require you to humbly go to Jesus over and over and over and over. First John 4 says this, Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And this is the love that God made manifest among us. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought, ought also to love one another. Verse 12. Of 1 John 4, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So take heart, husbands and wives, though we don't have the resources naturally. When marriage revolves around Jesus and grasp this profound mystery, he gives his power and his life to channel through us through faith. Because this 1 Corinthians 13.5 says, love does not insist on its own way. And as 2 Corinthians 5.15 says, Jesus died so that we who live might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us. But that prepares us for the third one. All right, so number one was the pleasure of promise. Number two is the power of promise, which is the life and death of Jesus. But now number three, what is the purpose of 
promise. Verse 33 helps us there. Begins with the word however, which is actually meant to be a transitional summation. So think of it this way. Here is now my closing argument, Paul is saying, where I recapitulate the argument of 22 through 30. There I talked about submission and sacrifice, and now I'll recapitulate it in one sentence. So here it is recapitulated. Let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Lord willing, next Sunday in our last sermon on marriage from this passage, we'll tease this out more. I'm calling that sermon the the dance of marriage, how it all works. But today we should at least see from verse 33 that the purpose of marriage is to mutually point us to Jesus as he distinctly displays his love as a husband sacrifices, as a wife joyfully submits and builds. We point each other to Christ in the distinct way that a husband and wife reflect the life of Christ and display the love of Christ as he displays it through us. This means, friends, that marriage is not a human invention for fleeting or shallow happiness, but that marriage is a divine creation that is redemptive and saving in its purpose. That's how big the scope of it is. I have a number of non-Christian friends, and we've talked about our marriages. And one of the things my non-Christian friends typically say is they'll say, Josh, you know, the key for me and my wife or the key for me and my husband is we have areas that are off limits to the other. You know, like I just let her do her thing here and she lets me do my thing here. And as long as we have large areas that we siphon off, then it works out just fine. And I like to say, well, that sounds more like the peaceful coexistence of two armies who are splitting up plots of land. That is not what the Bible's talking about between a husband and wife, because a husband and wife have opened everything. Because it's redemptive. They've become one. You're allowed to ask me anything. You're allowed to see everything. You've access to everything. You say, that sounds scary and that sounds painful. Yes, because God is progressively going to make you more like Jesus because marriage is not about finding a finished statue, but when two blocks of marble say, I do, and God gives each of them a chisel. (laughs) Now we've got to wield it gently, as gently as Jesus has wielded it on us who would not break a bruised reed or snuff out a smoldering wick. And yet it is about creating us more and more into the image of Christ because the profound mystery is that this is actually about showing us Christ and his church. So a couple concluding responses that I want to encourage you with. Here's the first one. Husbands and wives, look to Jesus. Let me use the Greek words for love this way. Eros, from which we get our word erotic. Let's think of it this way. That's the kind of love where you look at each other. Phileo, which we get brotherly love from, that's the kind of love where you link arms and you look at a common goal. But the kind of love that's being talked about here, agape love, is where both husband and wife look at Jesus. Look at him who empties himself. Look at him who serves. Look at him who left heaven. Look at him who wouldn't leave the cross. Look at him who rises. Look at him who gives. That means you'll have to do that over and over. A verse that God's put on my heart 
over the last week is Hebrews 4, verse 16. It's a verse I know, but I just haven't been living it as I ought to. Hebrews 4, 16 says this, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may find mercy and grace in time of need. I've known that verse by memory for years, but I forget how often it's a promise if I'll put it into practice. If I'll go to Jesus in the moment and say, will you help me please right now? He will. I'll tell you honestly, in marriage, that might mean at times you walk into the other room and say, Jesus, please help me. It may feel wooden. It may feel self-conscious. But as God increasingly humbles us, it can become more second nature. I bet most of you have a favorite author or a favorite mentor or a favorite teacher or a favorite someone that you've read everything just about that they've written or you've asked them every question you had as you were training in your career or learning things. And at first, it was probably self-conscious and it was a little rigid and you would ask them and you would learn and then you'd go back and you'd ask them. But then at some point, you did it so often that you just knew how they would respond. You knew what they would say is best. Imagine if we did that with Jesus. Well, I also want to remind us of this third point. This text reminds us that in Jesus we are complete. The husband and wife completion is a gift, but it's not the only way to be complete. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're not married and you're not planning on being married, and you say, Josh, are you saying single people can't be completed? Not at all. The text is showing us that husband and wife is an echo of the reality. But if you come to the reality, Christ still completes. Husband and wife is merely an arena in which he carries it out. But again, friend, all of this only comes home if you first come to Jesus. So this morning, what I pray most of all, you know, is that you have grasped the profound mystery. This is Christ's love. His self-emptying, cross-choosing death as a lamb who takes away our sin. Have you come to him as your Savior? Start there, and then let the Lord work. Let's pray together this morning. God, I thank you, Lord, for clear teaching in the Bible. And yet I am just a mouthpiece. So, Father, please, anything that I misspoke or even misunderstood, may it be forgotten or corrected. But as your messenger, anything that I said that is what you want said, give us ears to hear. May we see, Lord, that marriage has a promise that brings great pleasure. We live in a moment where people feel uncertain about making long-term commitments, but that is the beginning step. Help us to see the pleasure is built on this promise that you have with a person. To try to experience it outside of that can't be as deep and fulfilling as your good design. Most of all, though, Lord, help us to see that all of the idiosyncrasies that each husband and wife have in their own home should point us back to our need for the Lord Jesus, who gives us profound power to reflect in the intimacy of a relationship like that, the very love that God has for us while we were yet sinners. Thank you, Lord, that Christ died for us. 
that He rose for us and that He now can give us grace and mercy every single time we humbly ask for it. And I ask for it right now that You would give it to us as we respond. In Christ I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's e-b-c-r-a-l-e-i-g-h dot com.